Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, June 15th, we're studying Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 20. Paul is back in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. He stays there for quite some time, and the word of the Lord increases mightily. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have this regular guest, Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. Pastor Heidi serves as pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad to be back on as always. Pastor Heidi, in my introduction, I did not say anything about the weird stuff that happens in today's text. (laughs) I think you have perhaps one of the strangest texts in the book of Acts, one that often causes consternation. But as always, I know you're up to the challenge. Lots to talk about today. So, Pastor Heidi, give us some context. We're starting Acts 19. What should we know about the book of Acts, the surrounding context that helps us into the text we've got today? Well, I know that we've, I'm sure you've talked about all the missionary journeys that Paul is going on. This is the beginning of his third journey, uh, probably one of his latest before he's eventually going to be arrested. He's, in many cases, going back to places that he's already been, kind of seeing how things are going and uh, preaching the word and, and bringing it out into the region. Uh, But on this particular journey, he runs into some, as you said, uh, interesting things or strange things. I don't remember exact your your words there, but... I think I said weird. Weird, yes, weird things. And uh, he's going to be dealing with that weirdness uh, as we go through Ephesus. We're not even getting through the whole chapter because there's plenty of weird stuff in the end of the chapter too, so... That's true. A A lot happens here in Ephesus. Much of what is recorded in the book of Acts from Paul's third missionary journey does happen in Ephesus. It is an important place. In the in the previous text, Paul had been to Ephesus for a short time. He needed to leave. He said, if if God wills, I will return. It is the will of God that Paul return to Ephesus. That's where we, we find him here. Uh, Pastor Linnell yesterday in the text at the end of chapter 18 made the point that there are these strange things that happens happen in the book of Acts. And one of the things we should recognize is that what happens in the book of Acts is you see these things that are strange being put in order. And I think that was a, I found that a helpful approach to yesterday's text. I think it's going to be a helpful approach for our text too. Well, sure. I mean, but when we get to the sons of Skeva, I'm not really sure where the order is there, but we'll get to it. <laughs> All right. So we are in Acts chapter 19, starting at verse one. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. We'll pause there. That's through verse 7 of the text. There's quite a bit to talk about here. 
uh, Pastor Heidi, just as we get started, remind us about Apollos on his way to Corinth before we talk about the main thing here. Just to remind us of that context. Yeah, Apollos is a a believer who was in the pre- at the end of the previous chapter, kind of. You know, he was corrected on some things that he didn't have quite right. But once he was corrected, he goes out very boldly and be- and begins to show that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. And he is one who is, you know, very forward about it, very bold about it. And now apparently he has left Ephesus and is going towards Corinth. So he's on a journey of his own, uh, proclaiming the word of the Lord as well. But while he's in Corinth, this is when Paul comes to Ephesus. So does that help, or do we need to talk yeah. about him more? Nope, that's good. That sets the context. So Paul and and Luke is specific that Paul travels inland. He goes through land rather than by sea, as sometimes he has, to Ephesus, and he eats some disciples. That's the way Luke describes them. Talk about, just, just give us the interaction. Help us to understand what's happening in this back and forth between Paul and these disciples. Yeah, so Paul meets them. And I guess as Luke calls them the disciples, they must have some understanding of what is going to be called the way in this chapter, you know, some understanding of who Jesus is, but it's clearly extremely defective because they have no idea who the Holy Spirit is. And the fact that they don't know who the Holy Spirit is shows that there is some serious problems with their beliefs. I mean, with Apollos, it was some pretty minor things that he needed just to be corrected on, and he was able to continue on. But with these guys, there is a very serious problem, because Paul is even wondering, you know, well, then what were you baptized into at all? <laughs> your your belief is so defective in this case that he's, he's calling into question the fact that, you know, basically calling into question their very baptism, Right. Right. So in in terms of the interaction, the way that I, I read this back and forth is that you know, Paul hasn't been in Ephesus all that long. He's come mm-hmm. back now, and he doesn't know everybody there. And so it's almost like he's conducting pastoral visits. You know, he, he finds, True. okay, there's there are these Christians here in Ephesus. I want to get to know them. Here's this group of disciples. As he's talking to them, kind of like a, a new pastor might do at a parish, trying to get to know people, he speaks to them about their lives and about their faith. And, and he, that's kind of the context of this conversation and, and says, you know, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized or when you believed? Kind of thinking through the book of Acts, like what happened on Pentecost or what happened with Cornelius and his household at the end of Acts chapter 10. There are these moments where Christians receive this special outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, hey, did this happen here? And that leads to this like, wait, you don't know who the Holy Spirit kind of really awkward sort of, I don't know, awkward is maybe not the right word, but like, wait a second, what what's going on here? Right. Well, you'll notice, though, that he draws a clear connection between the spirit, belief, and baptism, right? Because he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, no, who's the Holy Spirit? And then he says, well, then what happened when you were baptized? So, I mean, there is this clear connection between all of these things that I think we should draw our attention to. But the fact that they don't know that there is a Holy Spirit, it shows that the baptism which they received is, I mean, it's invalid. I don't know how else to put it. It's an inadequate baptism. 
Right. So they they bring up then when he asks what what is this baptism that you did receive? They say John's baptism. And as, as you mentioned, there's there's a connection to what happened with Apollos. Uh, what what's going on here when they bring up John's baptism? Well, I think when they bring up John's baptism, you know, they have been baptized. Uh, John's baptism, whether they themselves were baptized by John or whether maybe there was some traveling teachers who did something similar to John, and that's what they mean by John's baptism, it's hard to tell. But the point is, is that they've received what John was doing. But because, but I would even argue that they must not have fully understood what was happening even then. Because Paul basically says, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance Telling, the one, telling people to believe in the one who's come after him, that is Jesus. And then they're baptized again, if you want to say, in the name of the Lord Jesus. So now they have a real baptism. Now they've received what they were supposed to receive in the first place, right? Mm. Yeah, and I, I think you're I think you're right with the way that the way Paul responds and what he says about John's baptism indicates that what these disciples had received wasn't the fullness of what John was preaching or giving. Because when you go into the Gospels and you look at what John did and said, his preaching, as as Paul even points out, his, his preaching very much pointed people to the one who was coming after him. The one who was coming after him was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so, it, I mean, it does seem that what these disciples have been taught and what they received wasn't even the fullness of what John was preaching, which is why I, I think this is kind of the way I'm trying to draw the conclusion is that that's the reason why Paul sees the need to, and, and we'll, we'll talk about this too, not rebaptize them, but to actually baptize them, that what they received was not in any way a Christian baptism such that Christ gave his church. Right. And I think especially when we're dealing with the issues like with John and stuff like that, yes, John is the the epitome of the Old Testament. He is the epitome of what had come before Jesus. And with John, all of that came to an end now that Jesus has come. So in a sense, you could even you could understand this as they're still stuck in what was before. Right. They're still stuck in the old. They haven't come into the new, and that's why they haven't received the Holy Spirit. And so they need to do this so that they can be a part of the new, be part of the church that is to be baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Mm, yeah, and again, I think a just a glance back at the end of Acts chapter 18 with Apollos is helpful, because Apollos is, is said to speak and teach accurately things concerning Jesus, but he only knows the baptism of John. It, it seems that Apollos has received enough of what John actually taught, that he knows who Jesus is. Priscilla and Aquila need to come along and give him more, and need to, to give him the fullness that's there. But there's no, there's no indication in Acts chapter 18, although I suppose you could try to make the case, Luke does not give an indication that Apollos needs to be baptized, that what he did receive was a Christian baptism, whereas here in Acts chapter 19, there's just that much greater deficiency, such that they didn't even know who the Holy Spirit was, and and what John had had been had been preaching wasn't fully given to these disciples, so Paul says, you need to be baptized, here it is. Right. Well, and I suppose we need to ask the question, at what point 
does one say, okay, your belief is deficient enough that, well, I mean, to be quite frank, that you aren't a Christian or to say that, well, what has happened here is inadequate and therefore we have, we have to do it as you would say for the first time. I mean, as we would say, but <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. I mean, and, and you know, for our listeners who are who are Lutherans, you know that we don't rebaptize people. So this this does become a question: Is this a rebaptism, or is it something else? How do I mean? How does Paul make this call, and how do pastors still today? What what are the? How does that work, Pastor Heidi? Take us into that conversation. Well, I think probably the most basic case where we would talk about this kind of question at all uh, would be if there is a a heretical idea or a very wrong idea about the identity of God. Mm-hmm. Um, because usually where this question comes up in our context is, is this person coming from a Trinitarian uh, confession, right? Like let's say somebody's converting from one group to another, to us, to Lutheranism, we would say, well, were you baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? If they weren't, we would say that, the, you know, there's there's a real problem there. And then if they actually deny such things, well, we would say, well, they're just simply not Christians. You know, because they have this in this deep deficiency in their knowledge, it's actually detrimental to everything. Because you can't just pick and choose what you believe about these kinds of things. You know, but we have to believe in the one who is actually doing the baptism, which is, you know, the Holy Trinity, right? That's where the question comes up the most often. Right. And and it's sometimes even more pronounced in our day where perhaps the actual words would have been spoken in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Right. But the faith that's behind the words is not a true Trinitarian faith. So, right. for example— the Mormon Church or the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, I think, is the, their official name. They would likely use the words Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a in a ritual that they would maybe even call baptism. But if such a person came to a Christian church and and said, "I've been baptized," we would say that's not really a Christian baptism because the God that whose name you used, though it was the same sounds coming out of the person's mouth. That's they don't believe in that true God, and so you were not actually baptized into His name. And should the Holy Spirit then bring that person to faith in the true God, we would baptize that person. And and this is where we were talking about this earlier. I would say we baptize them for the first time. Right. What they received before wasn't actually a Christian baptism. Right. Right. I mean, I I just say baptize again because that seems to be what Paul is doing here. But again. I, I'm not going di- to disagree with you on this. <laughs> I know. I'm giving you a hard time, Pastor <laughs> But I mean, it, and so it really does come down to what does this person believe? Because if if the belief is defective enough in this case, there comes a point when we can, when we have to say this person is no longer, we can't consider this person a Christian. And I know that's a hard thing for people to hear, but like, say, with the Mormons, you know, believing as they do that, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three different gods, that's a very different confession than what, you know, what is actually Orthodox Trinitarian belief. And for that reason, no matter what they do, no matter how Christian, quote unquote, it may seem, it's not actually of the same faith. And that's why there's that deep problem there. That's why in that case, 
someone who converts from Mormonism needs to be baptized, right? But if somebody like is coming from, say, I don't know, like a Baptist church or a Catholic church or something like that, where, you know, they believe in the Trinity, there's no need for a baptism because they received a Christian baptism, whatever they might teach about it at the time. Right, right. They would have received a valid Christian baptism, even in a Trinitarian Christian church. That would have been a valid Christian baptism, even if they weren't receiving the full benefits of it because they didn't believe everything that the scriptures said about it. It was right. still a valid baptism. And then to receive the benefits, it's simply, that's that's where faith comes in. Faith receives those benefits, and that's where the, the further teaching comes, but there's no need to redo the baptism. And and just to, to clarify as well, to, so that we, we're making sure we're saying this as clearly as possible, if a person is baptized as a Christian— and then loses their faith, you know, falls away from faith, but then is brought back to faith later, we don't rebaptize there, right? I mean, so just to, to make that plain, that it's not, it's it's the baptism into which you were baptized at the beginning. That's what we're talking about. If it was not a baptism of the Christian faith at the beginning, then it wasn't actually a baptism. You need to receive it. When you've received that gift, God has given it to you. It doesn't need to be repeated but you don't receive the benefits if there's no faith. Right, of course. And I, right. and I would also point out too, and I know we need to go on some other things, but um, if, if someone is baptized with a non-Trinitarian formula, even in a Trinitarian church, uh, that draws serious, you know, that causes serious questions. Like to say, like, I baptize you in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier. Uh, okay, but... There's a lot of doubt in that case. Yes. And in cases where there is a tremendous amount of doubt, like if someone doesn't know if they've been baptized, for example, I would say just be baptized. You know, there's nothing wrong with being baptized if you're not sure, you know, because we want you to be sure. <laughs> right. right, right. That's exactly right. And that's, a, that's also a helpful thing. And as a reminder, in verse 5... They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Right. That's not meant as a formula. We've seen that elsewhere in the book of Acts, that that, that is shorthand for receiving Christian baptism. It's not meant to substitute for the words that Jesus gives when he institutes Christian baptism at the end of Matthew's gospel. Right, right. Because sometimes you see groups who will argue that way too. So Right, right, right. And, and again, that's one of those examples where we want to make sure we understand the book of Acts correctly the descriptive text to take them as such and not make them prescriptions, particularly in cases like this where there's something deficient that's being fixed. As Pastor Linnell said, we don't want to build our theology on a problem that's that's being described to us. So any more on the, the baptism that happens here at the beginning of chapter 19, Pastor Heidi, before we move on? No, I think we, we got it pretty well covered now. All right. So we continue in Acts 19. We're picking up now at verse 8. And he, that's Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. 
Then, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That takes us through the rest of our text today, all the way through Acts 19, verse 20. Pastor Heidi, at the beginning of that section in verse 8, we get a summary of, of Paul's ministry in Ephesus for three months. Talk about what he what he was doing. Well, I mean, this is what we've seen him doing before, where he's going into where the Israelites are, and he's proclaiming Jesus very clearly and saying, you know, this Jesus whom you crucified is the Lord, and showing from the scriptures that this is actually the case. But as in many cases before this point, too, uh, some of them refuse to believe and, and stir up trouble, which causes him to withdraw from the synagogue and go to a more, I guess you could say, neutral place. Uh, the Hall of Tyrannus is a, I guess you could say, just like a public forum of sorts. And that's where he continues preaching the word. So there is this separation. I mean, this going to the synagogue first proclaiming Jesus there, but then separating from them as they uh, continue to resist him uh, because of unbelief. And that's what he's been, that's what he does pretty much throughout the whole time that he's in Ephesus. Yeah, the the pattern here is is very similar to what Paul's done elsewhere. We, we see it over and over again, where he goes to the synagogue, he starts there where they have the scriptures, he reasons with them, he persuades them concerning who Jesus is, rejection comes, he goes to the Gentiles. I, I think Tyrannus would make a great name for a Lutheran church, Tyrannus Lutheran Church. <laughs> I don't know. Have you ever seen that, Pastor Heidi? That's That would be a new one for me. Um, okay. If you, if you plant a church and name it Tyrannus, I will... I will support you. So, okay. Well, I mean, we we recently were working on a on a Lutheran church here. A couple of pastors and I are, are working on a church with some faithful lay folks in Bastrop, just down the road from me, and it's called Epiphany. So we we already missed the chance to ah. use Tyrannus, but maybe next time. Maybe <laughs> next time, Tyrannus Lutheran Church. If you're starting a church in your area of the country, give that a consideration. So, Pastor Heidi, uh, we find we find out here that. Paul stays for quite some time in Ephesus. This is longer than he stayed anywhere else from, from, what, I, from what I've read. Uh, he was in Corinth for a year and a half, and now he's going to be here in Ephesus for two years. This becomes a pretty important mission center. Right. Well, I mean, Ephesus is a pretty important center to begin with. I mean, pretty much is just as important as Corinth is in terms of the ancient world, because Ephesus being a major trading port in Asia, that is Western Anatolia, what is now Western Turkey, to really establish, like fully establish a church here would be a very strategic move on his part. And that's what he's trying to do, because if he can get a church established here, the whole region will come under its influence. So he's being very, 
being very shrewd about how he goes about this. Of course, I mean, yes, God is leading him to do it, and I'm not denying that at all. But his reasoning for doing this is because of the cultural and economic importance of the city. So he stays there for two years, it says in verse 10. We find out more of what that ministry entails. Verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, such that even things that he touched were healing people. Here we have another one of those weird things, Pastor Heidi. Let's start talking about it on this side of the break. Okay. Um, this, I mean, we've seen this kind of thing happening before. I mean, this isn't the first time this has happened in the Bible. Uh, you have the bones of, of Elijah, for example, or Elisha, excuse me, reviving a man. Uh, you have, if I remember correctly, Peter also had some of these things happening in the book of Acts. Um, so this this relic, I don't know. I mean, that's a loaded term. I don't know, Pastor Heidi. <laughs> uh, relic. I saw that in your notes. Relics of Paul. Wait a second. What's he? Is he selling indulgences? I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm crossing the Tiber is what I'm trying no, to say. Don't do it. I'm not going to. Don't worry. No, I mean, I don't know how else to describe them because what we have here is a physical thing that has become so associated with Paul that it actually carries with it some of his power. You see this also with Jesus, for example, the woman who has a flow of blood, um, touching the, the hem of his robe and being healed. So I think the, the safest way to go about this is to say that Paul is, bec is becoming something like Jesus in this case, even in like his clothes, even in the things that are associated with him, because just as those things once healed during the ministry of Jesus, so now they are also doing this during the ministry of Paul. I think it's a very clear indication of Jesus at work among his people. Well, and even the way that Luke writes in verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Right. You know, just the the subject and the verb of what's happening there, God was doing, is I think a, a huge part of this. And you mentioned other places in the book of Acts, or over and over again, particularly with Peter, he makes it very plain that this is happening because of the name of Jesus. And so we should have that same understanding here when it comes to Paul and these handkerchiefs and and what's what's going on with the healing that happens, again, that God's doing through Paul. We can talk a little bit more about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Acts 19 with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, June 15th. We're studying Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 20 with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. He serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He also helps to host the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. 
Pastor Heidi, prior to the break, we were talking about the extraordinary miracles that God was doing through the hands of Paul, even these handkerchiefs, aprons that had touched him, they were carried away to the sick. One of the commentaries that I took a look at suggested that the fact that these are carried away to the sick indicates that, I mean, these were not people who could physically come to Paul. And so, and, and you mentioned, you know, as Ephesus being this center there in the region, that this is already evidence of Ephesus beginning to serve the larger area as a center for Christian uh, Christian teaching and mission work. And and then the fact too, I think this is, there's something, and this provides a, a transition into the next part, that the diseases left and evil spirits came out. We see that that connection there between sickness and evil spirits. Both things are at work and the, the kingdom of God is being proclaimed uh, conquers both those things. Right. And I, I really do think that's the reason why this is mentioned at all, um, because now we're going to be talking about the evil spirits. And I do want to be quite clear, you know, I'm, I'm just joking when I talk about relics and stuff like that, because um, we obviously do not believe in many of the ideas that's, you know, that are often associated with that sort of thing. Um, it, it simply is just a recognition that what Paul is doing here through the power of God is some extraordinary things, things that we shouldn't be trying to imitate by any means. You know, that's right. I don't think we need well, to start. We don't need to start bringing out handkerchiefs and claiming that they're from Paul is what I'm saying. That's yes. Very, very well said, Pastor Heidi. And we want to make that clear that what happens here is is unique. Again, this is one of those places where the book of Acts is being descriptive, but is not being prescriptive. And, and we want to make that clear. So from from these extraordinary miracles that God does through Paul, some people see this, particularly the matter of evil spirits being cast out, because there are those there who are doing the same thing. The mention is made of itinerant Jewish exorcists. Pastor Heidi, what is, what's going on? Who are these people? Well, they seem to be people who, like many teachers in those days, Christian teachers included, would wander from place to place uh, doing things, trying to proclaim the word, you know, basically kind of like wandering evangelists of sorts. Um, but in this case, I think what we have here is maybe a kind of counter evangelism that these guys are trying to say, see, you know, we have the truth here. We're going to demonstrate it by doing miracles of our own. But they're a little disingenuous about it because they're trying to use Jesus to accomplish this. <laughs> So, I mean, is this is this something similar to say, and I, I know they're not described quite the same way. I don't think Simon uh, Magus is described as an exorcist, but something something similar where there's these you know, attempts at using magic of some kind to, uh, to, to accomplish these miracles? Right. I mean, of course, we're going to be hearing about magic at the end of this section, which is something that maybe we'll save a little bit for right there. But the point is, is that, yeah, if the the miracles that Paul are, is doing, you know, those come from God. Those come from the power of Jesus, and you know, faith is connected to them. But these itinerant Jewish exorcists are basically trying to do the same things, but without the faith. You know, they don't believe in Jesus. They're they want nothing to do with him, but they're trying to use him in a yeah, you could say a magical kind of way to use the power of his name to accomplish their 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 aims, their goals. I mean, it strikes. I mean, the way that I, I've pictured this is that these these sons of Skeva that we find out in verse fourteen, 
they've they've been listening to Paul, they've heard him use the name Jesus, and they think, ah, here's another sp- uh, spell, maybe isn't quite the right word, but here's another formula we can use in our bag of tricks. Uh, we'll, we'll use this too. And well, they, they find out that that's really a bad idea. So, and take us what, what, what happens when these seven sons of Sceva, what happens when they try to use the name of Jesus without faith? Yeah, it's, it's a bad time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because the, the man that they try to exercise, you know, the one who has an evil spirit basically says, yeah, okay, yeah, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you guys? And that's a terrifying thing to think about if you, I mean, if you really stop to think about it, you know, you're, you're basically, you're meddling with things you don't even understand. You know, Jesus, of course, they know because he is the son of God. All the demons know him as the son of God, albeit without faith. And Paul, because of his activities and his preaching of the gospel has become known to them, um, just like, for that matter, anyone who proclaims the word becomes known to them. But because they don't have any faith and they're just trying to use it in this, you know, show of power, you know, to use it to their own purposes, it basically says, I've never heard of you guys. And that's a dangerous thing because then he, the man basically attacks them and beats them so badly that they end up leaving the house naked and wounded. I mean, you're, it's, it's a bad time. (laughs) I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, a text like this, I think ought to serve a, as a, a, a warning to us simply for the reality of of demonic activity and not to take it lightly as it seems. I mean, I don't know, the, these sons of Sceva, it's not that they take it lightly, but they certainly seem to use it more as a an opportunity to to show off, to impress, to, to go about whatever it is that they're doing. And, and they learn pretty quickly just how real this is. And, and I wonder if, if we've lost that sense of the, the reality of the demonic, sometimes making a, a mockery of it, not on, on purpose, but just treating it more like a triviality. And this is a reminder that, that these are not things to be trifled with, that the demonic activity is real. Only our Lord Jesus has that power over them. And if, if we try to sort of play around with these things, we are out for, as you said, a bad time. Right. Well, and I think especially um, the the less seriously we take our call to Christian warfare, the less seriously we will treat the demonic, because our warfare is not with flesh and blood, as Paul says. Our warfare is with the spiritual forces, the heavenly things, the demonic forces of the air, of the you know the elemental things. You know these very powerful beings who are seeking to destroy us. And if we don't take that seriously, the way that the sons of Sceva are not taking that seriously, we're going to have a bad time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what when it comes to demonic activity today, exorcisms, are these some, I mean, are these things that we should be thinking about, concerned with today? And if so, how do we approach those things? Well, I think if we're going to approach exorcism today, we first of all need to regain a sense of the reality of the demonic, because without that, we're just going to treat exorcisms like, yeah, it makes for a good movie, but that's it. You know, then it becomes little more than show, little more than something empty. But when we take the demonic as seriously as it should be, then we can approach these things with the seriousness which it deserves. 
You know what I mean? I think so. I mean, t- talk more about that. What it, what does that look like? The seriousness that it deserves. How does a how does a Christian put that into practice? Well, I mean, to recognize that the things that we are contending with are not just people. I think it would be a, a good way to recognize it. That the things that we struggle with in our society, for example, there are demonic forces moving behind it. You know, that Satan is ultimately the one who is seeking to destroy us by inciting the world against us. I mean, we see this sort of thing happening in the book of Daniel, for example, with the the spirit that uh, the angel went out to fight against, you know, the spirit of the nation of Persia, the, the prince of Persia, I think is as he's called there. You know, and it's just a recognition that, yes, there are great and terrible things that are seeking to destroy us. And when we recognize that and take that seriously, then we will approach it in a serious manner because then we will actually see, you know, what Christ has come to do, which is to defend us against such powers. And I I think not only will it help us to take it seriously, but it'll also help us to approach it with the right tools or the right right gifts of God. I mean, I'm reminded of the time in... I think it's Mark 9, and it's it's in the Synoptic Gospels where the disciples, after Jesus comes down from his Mount of Transfiguration, he finds them, and they've been unable to cast out that demon. Jesus does. They ask him afterward, well, why couldn't we? And Jesus talks about, you know, this can only come out by fasting and prayer. And I, I mentioned that not as a, a way to, you know, to uh, Jesus doesn't give a formula there, but I, I think he does, he he gives us the tools when it comes to the demonic, you know, and, and when we recognize that there is demonic activity behind what's going on, that the, the devil is at work trying to destroy the things of Christ to harm the church, then we then we approach the issues that we see, whether in our lives or in our world, not only with politics, say, or, or the tools of this world, but we approach these things with the gospel, with prayer, with the gifts that God has given, and, and we... I think we hold on to those gifts of God more tightly when we realize what's at stake. You know, those those words at the end of Luther's morning and evening prayers, you know, let your holy angel be with me that the evil foe have no power over me. Like we actually need the holy angels to watch over us because it is the evil foe who's attacking us. Those those things, as you said, they, we take them more seriously and we cling all the more to the, the gifts that God has given as, as truly our only hope. Right, right. Well, and especially because when we do hold on to those things, we can see why Paul describes, for example, like in Ephesians 6, our warf- you know, our spiritual life in terms of warfare, why he says, you know, put on the helmet, put on the breastplate, put on, you know, all these pieces put on by prayer. You know, our warfare is spiritual. And if we're going to take the world seriously, if we're going to take our problems seriously, we need to approach them in spiritual ways. But unfortunately, our age has become so materialistic that we almost never approach it in terms of spiritual warfare. It's always, oh, what can we do in the physical realm first? And then maybe prayer gets added on at the end. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, and even, I mean, thinking in the wake of, of many tragedies, most recently the, the shooting that happened at the school in Uvalde, what a, what a horrific thing, Lord have mercy. And you see how often in the response to that, Christians rightly begin to say prayers, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. And, and yet sometimes the world will say, why don't you do something 
why are you only praying as if prayer doesn't do anything? And goodness, how many, how many such tragedies have been averted because of prayers that we don't, we just don't know that that's what the Lord did. I mean, we, we should never take our prayers lightly when it comes to the Lord being gracious and merciful and answering those prayers and defending us from these terrible enemies precisely because we've we've used those tools he's given us. Well, and also when we deal with these things too, spiritual warfare will help us to deal with all of it because then we will be able to look to the Lord who can actually do something. Yeah. You know, because when we're relying on ourselves and relying on what can we do, what can we do all the time, you know, that can lead us into some pretty dangerous pl- places too. I mean, the Lord does want us to take care of certain things when we have the ability to do it. And maybe he is the one, you know, we are the ones that he is raising up for that purpose, certainly. But we have hope because we know that ultimately justice will prevail when Jesus judges the world. That's right. Pastor Heidi, you, you just managed to get that in. I had to. We were talking about that. That's, but well said, well said. And it, it is important as we think about these things. So again, demonic activity, a real thing, something for us to take seriously, but also to recognize that our Lord Jesus truly does rule over the demons and that he has conquered them. And as Christians, we cling all the more closely to him, the gifts that he has given and not not the false things that don't actually do anything for us. So as the text continues, you've got the the sons of Sceva who've been whipped and beaten and, and sent on their way in a really horrific thing. And this makes the rounds. No surprise there that this becomes known to everyone in Ephesus. Fear comes upon them. Jesus is extolled. And there's quite an outpouring. Take us into the aftermath of what happens after this thing happens with the sons of Sceva. Yeah. Then we get a kind of an interesting thing where a number of books are gathered, books uh, specifically like magical books, uh, the kinds of books where, you know, you would have arcane knowledge, spells, that sort of thing. They're gathered together and they're burned. And I think, and the reason why this is done, we'll talk about magic in a moment, but the reason why this is done is as a fruit of sincere repentance, uh, because they recognize that these things are evil, that these things have no place among Christians. And for that reason, that's why they destroy them. Even if, and even when they come to be valued at 50,000 pieces of silver, that's an enormous amount of money. So basically you could, if you took your entire life savings or you know your entire wages for many, many years, and you just burned it all at once because you knew that's what you had to do as a Christian. That's what's happening here. It's a very sincere repentance on the part of, of these people uh, turning towards the Lord. Yeah, I mean, they don't they don't try to sell the things and get the money so that someone else might be led astray by them. They actually burn them. It is it is quite the sincere fruit of repentance that we see. Talk a little bit about the the issue of magic that's brought up here. What what's going on? How is this still a danger today? Yeah, well, I think this kind of ties in pretty nicely to what we were talking about with the demonic, uh, because magic in the Bible is always presented as a very serious thing to be on guard against. Uh, Here in the book of Acts, the word used to describe magic is a word that means something like meddling, like, you know, delving into things that you really shouldn't be getting into, that sort of thing. Uh, In the Old Testament, the word for magic is often more like secret things, 
things which are hidden. I mean, it's the same kind of idea that it is this knowledge of the world or the knowledge of the of powers which people really should not have. And people use these things for evil ends. And I think that's what really makes it so dangerous in a biblical way of looking at things is because it is an attempt to get power apart from God, basically to take into your own power, to take into your own hands, the things which properly belong to God. This, whenever we talk about magic in this sense, my mind always goes to the small catechism, mm-hmm. to the, the second uh, commandment where Luther reminds us not to, to engage in satanic arts. Do, is this, but I think sometimes, you know, we, we read particularly this second half of this text and we're like, nah, you know, the sons of Sceva, that's not going to happen today. Magic books being burned, that's not going to happen today. We're, I mean, are we blind in this, Pastor Heidi, or are these things, are we better than this now? What do you think? Well, I think we're 100% blind. Uh, and I say that because we have convinced ourselves that there is no such thing as magic. We've convinced ourselves that magic is all parlor tricks. We've convinced ourselves that magic is all just sleight of hand. You know, we're just trying to have a good time. Or at best, you see it like with uh, movies and stuff like that. I think of like Harry Potter. You know, it's just a matter of the will, right? I'm going to force my will through these special means upon someone else. That's what magic is. And we know that that doesn't really happen And that's why we don't take this sort of thing seriously. But that's not what the Bible does. The Bible does take it seriously. It takes it so seriously, in fact, that, you know, the Old Testament says that, you know, you shall not suffer a witch to live. I mean, these are a very real danger, whether we believe in it or not. And the less we believe in the reality of magic and of this sort of power, uh, the less we are going to believe in the demonic in general. So I think these two are very closely connected. So with this with this being a blind spot for us, where where do we need to have our eyes opened? I mean, you mentioned Harry Potter. Is that is that where we need to have our eyes opened or something else? What do you what do you think? It's not yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a tricky question. Because what is it that we are being led into? You know, because if we are just talking about magic generally, we can have a discussion about it without being tempted to actually do these things. But if something leads us into that way of thinking or leads us into these kinds of things, that is always a dangerous thing. And no matter what it is, we have to resist it. So I mean, it sounds like. Well, let me just throw a few things out there. When okay. it, from in my in my mind, things like horoscopes. These are things we shouldn't really mess with. Uh, things like fortune tellers. Maybe you drive. I don't know where. You, I don't know. I don't know exactly where Hanover and New Salem are, but I know <laughs> when I drive between here and Austin, that I I pass a couple places that that claim to be psychic and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like, those are the types of things in my mind where sometimes maybe we we think, oh, that's cute, and and we think, oh, well, maybe it's not all that bad if I start looking into these things. And and in my mind, that's where we start crossing this line and, and we start to become blinded to what danger there really could be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, especially because like with um, fortune tellers and that sort of thing, or the, the necromancers of the Old Testament, um, they were the ones who claimed to reveal secret things by means of the dead. 
And that was something that was always strictly forbidden to Israel to, to try to find answers or to find things by means of the departed spirits. Um, and honestly, the Bible treats that as a real thing and one that should not be messed with. Again, we approach it with this kind of a, oh, it's cute kind of a thing. But in reality, demonic spirits are trying to deceive us. And if this is how they're going to get us, then that's how they'll do it. If they're going to get us by convincing us that they aren't real, that's how they'll do it. We have to be on guard against whatever they're trying to do to lead us away from the Lord. I should add, Pastor Heidi, that that this is the type of thing that is an excellent thing to talk about with your pastor. If you are concerned that some of these things may be temptations to you, or that, that you've fallen into things that you shouldn't be or are threatening your spiritual health, then you really should go talk to your pastor. He is there to care for your soul, to help you think through these things in light of God's Word, uh, to guide you according to God's Word. So if, if there is anything that we're talking about today that, that's making you wonder, go talk to your pastor about it. Or, or if you don't have a, a solid Lutheran pastor, we will, and you're not connected to that, that congregation, let us know. We'll connect you to a, a faithful Lutheran pastor in your area. I think that that's an important thing to, to bring out too, Pastor Heidi. Sometimes these these matters that we're talking about may not be as as simple, or they may be you know, like, well, am I being tempted here? That's a question for your pastor. Go talk to him. He will help you with that. And I think he'll help you too with what does the fruit of repentance look like? That's that's what's that also is involved in the text today. Yeah. Oh, of course, because once these men realize what they've been doing they realized they, they couldn't keep doing it. And so that's why they just stopped, completely destroyed it so that no one else would be tempted by it. That was the fruit of repentance. And what that looks like in an individual case, obviously, is going to vary uh, because, you know, the fruits are, are going to be a little bit different. But the seriousness with which they took these things is something that we need to do as well. And not to just treat this as, you know, something for kids or parlor tricks or whatever it may be. You know, there are forces in this world that we should not meddle with. And if we do, we run a very serious spiritual danger. But the Lord is greater than all of these things, and he will bring us out from them. That is something we have to emphasize as well. Mm, certainly. And I think, it, you know, that last verse of our text, verse 20, helps us to emphasize this. It, it is the word of the Lord that is continuing to increase and prevail mightily, that even in the face of the demonic activity that's happening there in Ephesus, all this, these magic books that are out there that are now being burned, how's this happening? Why is it happening? It is because the word of the Lord is doing its work. Right, right. And the word of the Lord will continue to do its work. So if you know, if you have questions on these sorts of things, like you, like you said, seek out your pastor and Talk to him about it and be in the word, because it is the word which is the sword of the spirit, not our intellect, not our you know understanding, but the word of God itself, which will defend us against these things. Mm, yeah, and we've seen this previously in the book of Acts, the way that Luke writes there in verse 20, that the word of the Lord is increasing and prevailing. You know, it, this book is called the Acts of the Apostles, and yet we see how often it is the word of the Lord that is the the main character, as several of our guests have put it. The word of the Lord is at work. And Luke writes that very similarly here in, in verse 20. That's something that we should always keep in mind. Again, as we were saying, 
when we recognize the seriousness of the enemy we face, we cling to the the one who is the victor over those enemies all the more. Right. And cling to what he has given to us, you know, to actually fight in that battle. Yes, the word of the Lord, the sword of the spirit, as you said. Pastor Heidi, we have about two minutes here left on the morning. Help us to wrap up this weird, strange text from Acts 19, and yet one that is full of good news. Help us to to wrap it up. Well, I mean, I think what we've emphasized so far is what we need to continue to emphasize, that yes, there are some dangerous things out there that we must be on guard against. And if we come at it with a deficient understanding, if we come at it, you know, on our own powers, on our own terms, then we're not going to be prepared for such things. But we need to be, we need not be afraid because Jesus is the one who is greater than all of these things. Jesus is the one whom the spirits know and fear. Jesus is the one who will overcome. And Jesus is the one who will take care of us through all of these things. So no matter what we're dealing with, no matter what we're going through, turn to Jesus and hold on to him, and we will never be put to shame. Pastor Zelwyn Heidi is pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He is also a host of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken helping us today with Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 20. Pastor Heidi, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 19, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.